I remember the story told by Lee Rogers. He was traveling with a delegation with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and was traveling to a sister city in Japan. When the Japanese found out that Lee could speak in the area of marketing in America, they invited him last minute uh, to speak at a breakfast meeting uh, for his topic of expertise. Seeing an opportunity to show off his linguistic skills, Lee wanted to address his audience the next day in Japanese. And so he asked the interpreter with him, how do you pronounce the word? And he pointed to a picture of a man and a woman because he wanted to greet them in Japanese. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. And because of the deficiencies of the interpreter, simply pointed to a picture of a man and a woman and asked the interpreter, how do you say that in Japanese? When he found out, he began to practice in the hotel room. And so the next morning, feeling very confident, uh, he began his speech in Japanese with, Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. As he looked in the audience, he saw quite a weird reaction when he said that. But nevertheless, he marched on and delivered a wonderful 20-minute speech on the marketing aspects of America. He sat down after his speech to generous applause. He was quite pleased with himself. He had done well. It was then that one of his hosts leaned over and inquired why he had started with such a strange introduction. He said to his host, what's so strange? I simply said, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. His host said, no, you did not. You said, good morning, toilets and urinals. This is what happens when you prepare things last minute, when you don't put in the preparation that you really need to, and when you assume you know more than you really do. You will fail. I like what Max Brook writes in his book. He says this, If you believe you can accomplish everything by cramming at the 11th hour, by all means, don't lift a finger now. But you may think twice about beginning to build your ark once it has already started raining. There is great wisdom in that. As we continue our sermon series this morning entitled Own Up, a call for personal responsibilities, we talk this morning in the area of our responsibility to be prepared. There's a problem in this generation today, young and old, is that we don't like to prepare very much. We think we can survive by winging it. We rest upon our own talents and abilities to live in the moment. We think we can get up and speak whatever comes to our mind. No wonder when the storms hit, when someone opposes us, We fall flat on our faces. This is a generation, especially for Christians, who are not prepared for the onslaught of the world. And so we often fail in our Christian walk. What are we to prepare for? Let's take a look this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. As we continue our study in the book of 1 Peter, and now we come to verses 13 to 22. First Peter chapter 3 
verses 13 to 22. If you ever miss any sermon and would like to go back and listen to this series in our exposition of 1 Peter, you're more than welcome to go to our website and download on MP3 uh, our sermon series in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, read this. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Peter begins this section by posing a question. He says to his readers, he says to us, if you are doing what is right in living for the cause of Christ, who can really harm you? It's a rhetorical question, the answer being no one. Because he notes in verses 13 and 14 that there will be times when for the cause of Christ, you and I will suffer. Is that something you are okay with? You and I need to be prepared to suffer for the cause of Christ. It is the first responsibility that Peter writes about, and that's number one if you're taking notes. The responsibility to be prepared to suffer. Verse 14 assumes the question, what can they really do to you? And if you think about it, the worst that the world can do to you is to take your physical life. But it should be of no matter. Why? Because you already have eternal life. And therefore, you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, have the responsibility to be prepared to suffer. And it is the problem of the Christian today that we are not prepared for the possible eventuality of suffering both emotionally and mentally and physically and spiritually, that we often pull back when we should be pushing forward for the cause of Christ. If you are prepared to suffer, you don't have to worry because you suffer for a good cause. That's what the Bible says in verse 13 and 14. It's for a a righteous purpose. And more than that, it's interesting, the Bible says in verse 14, but even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, remember you are blessed. Huh? How can one be blessed who is experiencing suffering? If we look at the Greek word for how it's translated blessed in verse 14, that word blessed has the idea of one who is highly privileged, And the emphasis is that if you suffer for Jesus, for the cause of Christ, then it is a privilege and you should count it as one. In fact, in the last part of verse 14, where it says, and do not be afraid of their threats or be troubled, Peter is quoting from the book of Isaiah, chapter 8, verse 12. And it is in the context of the book of Isaiah. And it is in that context where it says that one needs to fear God more than fearing man. And so putting it all together... It is a privilege when you suffer for Jesus Christ and for the cause of Christ because in that suffering, you are showing showing forth that you fear God more than you fear man. And in that, you should feel blessed. In reality, we don't see suffering for the cause of Christ as a privilege. 
You may be sitting there right now this morning thinking, Pastor, if that is a privilege, then someone else can be blessed and have that privilege, right? I don't want to suffer. Someone else can suffer. They can have the privilege of suffering. We don't mind praying for others who are suffering. We'd rather do that than having others pray for us as we suffer. This is illustrated in the next story. It's a story of a pastor's wife who was preparing pancakes for breakfast for her two young children, her two young sons. As she was cooking her first pancake, the boys began to argue who would get the first pancake as they smelled the beautiful aroma of a freshly cooked pancake. Their mother saw the opportunity for a moral lesson. And so before she gave out the first pancake, she said to her two sons, If Jesus were sitting here, you know what he would say, boys? He would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. Boys, that is what Jesus would say. Let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. Immediately, without missing a beat, the oldest boy turned to his younger brother and said to him, you be Jesus. And so it is, that is our perception of suffering. Others can suffer, but not me. And yet the Bible tells us you and I have the responsibility to be prepared to live this Christian life and for the cause of Christ with the notion and the idea that we will suffer. You must be prepared to suffer. Now jump down to verse 17 where Peter concludes this idea. He writes... For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Here Peter presents a very clear choice. Do you choose to do what is right and then experience the consequences of suffering? Or would you rather do what is evil and not suffer? What would be your honest position? Would you rather do wrong and not suffer, or would you rather do right and suffer? It is because we cannot ask and answer this question honestly that we are not prepared to suffer. You see, preparing to suffer means that in our mind, as the first part of 1 Peter tells us, we have girded up the loins of our minds so that we would rather do what is right and suffer than to do wrong and not suffer. My friends, you are prepared to suffer when you can answer this question and answer it in the affirmative. I can experience the consequences of doing what is right, even if it entails suffering. Would you be okay with that? God reminded me of this lesson again this week. Early this week, I was driving from San Juan to Manila, and I made a U-turn when the stoplight was distinctively yellow. But as I made that U-turn, to greet me as I came out of that turn was a Manila police officer who stopped me and said I had turned on the red light. I argued at first. I said, I'm not colorblind. That was yellow. He said, no, it was red, and we can check the cameras. 
I looked around. It was a squatter area, and I, I don't think there were any cameras there. So I doubted very much what he was saying. Well, we went through the customary procedures. He asked for my license. I showed it to him. But what was interesting, or it shouldn't be uh, a surprise to many of you, he didn't immediately write the ticket. And as he held on to my license, he began to tell me about the difficulties of retrieving this license from Manila City Hall and the hassle it would be, and how he would have to confiscate my license, although he didn't want to do it, and I, I would have to appear in the next five days, and uh, there would be a fine of 2,000 pesos for reckless driving. And he said it would be such a hassle. And then he said to me, but, but since you're a nice guy, we could settle it here for 600 pesos because that is what Manila City Hall would pay me for writing this ticket. That didn't sound right, but I let him say that. And let me be very honest with you. In that situation, for a split moment, a thought entered my mind. I thought to myself, you know what? There are no cameras. It is pitch dark. My schedule this week was very busy. I don't have the time nor the energy to drive myself to Manila City Hall and mess with the hassle. And for that split moment, even as a pastor, I thought I could settle this issue. But then in that moment, this principle came to mind only because I was preparing it to preach to you this Sunday. And the voice of the Lord, inaudible to him, was very audible in my heart. Stephen, are you willing to suffer for doing what is right? Lord, why do you ask me these questions? I often wonder how come these object lessons happen right as I'm preparing to preach it. But then again, I shouldn't be surprised because at the beginning of every week, I pray, Lord, teach me first so that I can teach others. <laughs> I knew that I had to do what was right, even though it would cost me a lot of suffering. So I turned uh, to the policeman and I told him, probably a bit sarcastically, Sir, you mean you want me, a pastor, to give you 600 pesos? I can't do that. You write your ticket. I'll be honest with you, I did stress the I'm a pastor part. <laughs> he thought about it for a few minutes. And then he said to me, no, sir, I don't want you to do that. You can go now. Now, some of you are thinking, all right, if that ever happens to me, I'll use the same line. <laughs> but you know you can't because you're not a pastor. And then you would be lying. And then that is a sin covering up another sin. But you know what you can say? And I wonder if any of you would say this, sir, I can't give you 600 pesos because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. So you go ahead and write the ticket. Have any of you ever said that? It's hard, I know. There's a struggle. But that's what the Bible teaches. To be prepared to suffer for righteousness' sake. 
I like what Admit Killarney says. He writes of preparation. Preparation doesn't assure victory. It assures confidence. Preparation doesn't assure victory. It assures confidence. Just because you are prepared doesn't mean all will go well. It doesn't mean you will win. The Bible does not say that. Preparation doesn't assure victory, but boy, does it assure confidence. It assures that you will do what is right. And that's why this lesson is so important. The preparation to suffer will allow you to do what is right. It is because men and women who say they follow Jesus and are not prepared to suffer, it is in those moments that we waver to do what is right and what is wrong. Are you prepared in the responsibility you and I have to do what is right by preparing ourselves for the consequences of doing what is right, and that is suffer? That is a responsibility you and I have to be prepared to suffer. Verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Peter continues, and he says to those who are followers of Jesus Christ, number two, you must be prepared to defend your faith. Prepared to defend your faith. Are you ready, my friends, to give a defense for everyone who asks you about this hope in Jesus Christ that you have? You see, lifelong learning about God and His Word is something that all of us need to put effort in. Because at any opportunity, we must be able to verbally defend our faith. In Christian theology, we call this apologetics. An area of study of knowing how to defend your faith. In our upcoming Spiritual Life Conference in a few months, we will tackle this area of apologetics with a speaker from America. I hope you will take time to come. You see, if your decision to follow Jesus Christ is the most important decision in your life, and it should be, how can it not be when we who are destined for the fire pits of hell have been brought into the eternal glories of heaven through the saving work of Jesus Christ, how can that not be the most important decision of our life? But how ironic that many of us cannot explain to others why we have made this most important decision in our life. Now, perhaps in your mind, you can somehow justify, oddly, that I have made a decision to the most important question in my life, and yet I can't explain it. Now, you can justify that in your mind, but the reality is the world will have a big question mark because they cannot understand how you, as a very wise person, a thinking person, can make the most important decision of his or her life and not be able to explain it to someone else. Because if someone were to ask you why you perhaps bought this car, why did you buy this Toyota over this Nissan? Why did you choose this Android phone over this Apple iPhone? I'm sure many of us would be able to explain the technical specifications, 
Some of you would give practical reasons. Some of you would say it's because of price point. You will be able to explain that, the reason why you chose these things. But how sad it is that many of us, when one asks about the hope that we have, cannot explain the reason of why we chose Jesus over Buddha. Or why we chose a relationship with holy God instead of Brahma in the Hindu faith. And how we chose a life of suffering to do what is right instead of doing what is wrong and not suffering. We can't explain those things. It must be a wonderment to the world how we cannot defend our faith. My friends, you need to understand that knowledge is not only in the head. It must be brought to the heart. The knowledge that you have about Jesus Christ and about the Christian faith should not only be in the facts that you know, but it must be internalized. It must be a part of you that when anyone ever asks you about your faith in Jesus Christ and your intimate walk with Him, you will be able to explain why you desire to walk in His footsteps. Here's the problem of our culture that seems to accentuate this problem of knowing and yet not knowing. In this culture, especially if you went to a Chinese school for high school, we have taught you very well how to memorize without understanding, right? When you graduate from any school, whether Grace or St. Stephen's or Hope, you can memorize thousands of Chinese words. You can recognize how they are written. You even know what part of the sentence they should be in. But when you're asked to read it or to explain it, you say, I have no idea. I've only memorized but I do not understand, nor do I need to. Because something magical happens when you graduate. You also have the gift of the day after you graduate, forgetting all those words. As we have treated the language, so we've treated the faith. We're good at memorizing the facts, but when asked to give the reason for how that relates to our life and why we made this most important decision of our life, we cannot explain it even in the simplest terms. It is not only you who are unprepared, it is sometimes even also us as pastors. I spoke at a conference recently and I was asked to uh, train about 200 pastors and lay leaders. I was not told by the host that uh, in this day-long seminar and training, there would be in attendance seminary professors who were opposed to my biblical theological stance, our biblical theological stance, and they would be attending. I've taught in the seminary level. I've debated before, so it shouldn't be an issue if I was prepared, but I wasn't prepared. I'd spoken for about six hours I was tired, my mind was tired, I was physically tired, but I did something dumb. I gave them in the last hour an opportunity for them to ask questions, a question and answer portion, because I'd assumed that this would be a friendly crowd and they had come to learn and that their questions would be clarifying questions. 
But it was in this window that these liberal professors were there on the attack. And they attacked. How do I know they attacked? Because they high-fived each other after their question. These were not questions I had never heard before. I'd answer these questions, but I was not mentally prepared. I was not prepared at all. In fact, they weren't really questions. They just got up and gave long speeches defending their position. And in many ways, I was shell-shocked. I didn't know what had hit me. And the answers I gave were anemic, and I felt very bad. What saved me was an old lady sitting up in the front. She raised her hand. How can you not call on her? I thought, Lord, my day cannot get any worse. Now, this old lady will be attacking me. But I called on her. And uh, instead of asking me a question, she turned around and faced the audience. And she said this. You pastors, just because you say a lot and quote a lot of scriptures doesn't make you right. And it doesn't make you smarter. And here's what she said. I love this. She said, I came here to learn from this man. And she pointed at me, not from you. So if you have a question to ask, ask it. If you don't have a question, then sit down and be quiet. Now, when you've been reprimanded by an old lady, you don't say any more things. I thank the Lord for sending her that day. But what a wake-up call for me to be prepared, always on my toes. Because here's the reality, my friends. It is a hostile crowd out there, even though you may think they are your friends. There will be times when even your family members and your closest colleagues will pop that question because hopefully you've been praying for it, about the opportunity for you to tell them about your faith. And yes, they will push back at you. Are you ready, as the Bible says, to give a defense for everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you? And we don't do this condescendingly. We do this, as the Bible says in verse 15, with meekness and fear. Are you ready to defend your faith? As part of this, look at verse 16. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Peter reminds us in verse 16, remember that when you defend your faith verbally, make sure your life matches with what you are saying. An oral defense of your faith better match with the way you and I live my life. You see, your life is one of the biggest proof of your walk with Christ. And how you live for Christ is the greatest defense of your faith. Because if you don't have a life of example, you don't live a life of example, you don't have much moral authority to stand on. It's like someone who runs for public office and say, in the bully pulpit, they're there to curb corruption, but they themselves are corrupt. How can you believe them? So it is in the Christian life. 
You say you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You are able to verbally defend your faith and the uniqueness of the Son of God coming to die for your sins and how it radically transforms your life. And they look at your life and they see nothing has changed. The walk must match the talk. Or perhaps some of you, when you're playing basketball on Sunday mornings or you're doing Sunday on something on Sunday mornings, someone asks you, hey, aren't you a Christian? Aren't you supposed to go to church? What will be your answer? Well, good thing our church has a church on Saturday night. You can tell them that. Or if they ask you, hey, why don't you go to this and that place? Why don't you watch this show or this movie? Can you tell them, because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? It's really hard to defend your Christian faith if they find you in places you should not be and watching things you should not be watching. Hard to defend the hope that you have. It's hard to tell your children that they must do what is good and that they must follow the ways of Jesus Christ when they see in your actions something radically different. It's hard, young people, to draw your unbelieving parents and grandparents to the Lord when they cannot see a change in your own life. Are you prepared to defend your faith in words and in deeds? In verses 18 to 22, Peter uses the example of Jesus Christ as the perfect example to illustrate the principles he's talked about and also to give us our third idea. Let me read verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins the just for the unjust, that he might bring to us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Here Peter writes and reminds us that Jesus suffered for doing what is right in doing the will of the Father. And you know, if you study the life of Jesus Christ, you'll realize that Jesus never pulled back when he thought of the cross. It never crossed his mind not to die for the sins of mankind. He was willing to undergo the cruelest of suffering on behalf of us and in obedience to the will of the Father. He was prepared to do what was right and suffer the consequences. Jesus was prepared to defend what was right, and his life proved it. He had no problems telling those who asked him, why are you doing what you are doing? He says to them, I've come to do the will of my Father. No excuses. I've come to seek the lost. He was prepared. If you look at verse 18, this is one of the wonderful verses that speaks of the great theology of soteriology. A great summary of the work of Jesus Christ, just in this one verse, and we could spend an entire sermon on verse 18. 
Christ suffered once for all for sin. Jesus Christ's action dealt with the sin problem once and for all. No need for works to save you. For the purpose of what? Verse 18, that he might bring us to God. It is the purpose of salvation to bring us back to fellowship with holy God. That being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Verse 18 ends us with a reminder of Jesus Christ's resurrection, which affirms that all that he said and all that he did was true. And that is why we celebrate Easter, and we will celebrate Easter in a few weeks. Because it is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that affirms that what he did on the cross did, in fact, save mankind from sin. Peter continues in verses 19 and 20. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. These two verses are some of the most difficult verses in all the Bible to interpret. And the reason it's difficult to interpret these two verses is because it's hard to identify who the spirits in verse 19 we are talking about. Now, spirits here can refer to demons or it can refer to disobedient human beings. So sometime between the death of Jesus and his resurrection, Jesus declared victory in hell over demons who were imprisoned there or disobedient people who were there in the time of Noah. He declared victory over sin. I've conquered the grave and he would be resurrected. Now they refer to fallen angels. It was perhaps because they did something that deserved their imprisonment. And the book of Jude and Second Peter would shed light on that. If it refers to disobedient people, then these people were disobedient during the time before the flood as Noah was building the ark. You remember the story of Noah? It took him 120 years to build the ark. Can you imagine the ridicule he must have gotten? Noah, you are a crazy old man. What in the world are you doing? You are building an amazingly big boat, and it has never rained in the history of mankind. It was those people. In fact, it was the entire world, because as we find out in verse 20, only eight were saved. Well, regardless of whether there are fallen angels or disobedient people, the Bible says they are awaiting the final judgment of God at the great white throne judgment spoken of in Revelations chapter 20. Regardless of their identity of the word spirits, the emphasis is on Noah. It's fitting. Because like Jesus, Noah was an example of a man of faith who endured unjust suffering in the face of persecution. He was willing to do what was right and earn with it the ridicule and, and the consequences. He suffered. It was in his old age as he did this that he also had a ready defense for the questions thrown at him. You know, if I was in the place of Noah, and for 120 years, someone ridiculed me, and during that time, it had never rained a drop. 
I'm probably hedging my bet, right? As we would all do. Hey, Noah, why are you building such a big ark? There's no flood coming. Uh, well, you know what, guys? If there was no flood, it's okay. I built a zoo. Come visit. And we begin to justify. Hey, guys, don't worry. The flood never comes. I just built an amazingly big house for my, me and my family, right? That's how we would do it. But not Noah. The Bible tells us in the book of Genesis and even in the book of Hebrews, when they asked Noah what he was doing, the Bible tells us he pleaded with them. He, he, he prayed and he preached to them this generation. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says, By faith, Noah divinely warned of things not yet seen. And I love this phrase. And he moved with godly fear. His answer to his critics was, no, it is coming. And he moved with godly fear. He was not afraid of ridicule. He defended his faith well. His faith in the Lord. And you know how the Lord honored him? Right there in verse 20. Eight, including himself, were saved because they trusted in God. Verse 21 and 22. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. What, Paul, what Peter does is he uses an analogy. He uses what's called a type. And he transitions from the flood, Noah's flood, and he uses a water analogy and he correlates it with the present day baptism. And he says, just as the flood wiped out the old sinful world in Noah's time, so also the symbolism of baptism, which breaks us from one's former life of sin and allows us to enter into the new life with Jesus Christ as we identify with him. Peter is very clear that baptism does not save. Verse 21 is very clear. It does not lead to the removal of the filth of the flesh. Baptism does not save. And so whenever you hear the phrase, when an infant is baptized, welcome to the Christian faith that is theologically wrong. The Bible does not teach that. Verse 21 is very clear. Baptism does not save. You can die without being baptized and you would go to heaven if you believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. But what baptism does is that, just like communion, it symbolically reminds us of our association with Jesus Christ. It identifies us with Him. It identifies and reminds us of our break from a life of sin into a life following Jesus. And in the preparation of entering to this world, we find in verses 18 to 22, our third principle. We have the responsibility to prepare to identify with Jesus Christ. Prepared to identify with Christ, number three. We identify with him. 
we say to the world we believe in everything he has taught us, we believe in the things that are taught in the scriptures, and we agree with his teachings, and we will live a life that matches what he has taught us. Baptism is a command of God. It is important because it identifies us with him. If you are a Christian this morning and you are not yet baptized, then the Bible says you are living in disobedience. Because the question invariably must be, if you desire to follow Jesus, why do you not make a formal public profession of faith in baptism? Whatever your reasons, I don't know. That's between you and God. But if you are able to get baptized and you are not, then the Bible says you are living in disobedience because it is a command of God. He wants men and women who verbally say they follow him to take literally the plunge to identify with him. You see, this is important. Because unless we are prepared to formally identify with Jesus Christ, then the problem is we often switch teams. We switch teams when it is convenient for us. Let me give you an example. Throughout the 90s, as I know many of you have, you have your L.A. Lakers jersey. You proudly wear it as they won championship after championship. But I know what a lot of you did. When the Lakers began their decline, you hung up your Laker jersey. You didn't throw it away in case they win again. And you bought an L.A. Clippers jersey. And you wore your Clippers jersey proudly as they did well. Then as they went on a decline, you hung that up and you bought a Golden State Warriors jersey. And when someone calls you on it, hey, you keep changing jerseys, what do you tell them? Well, they're all teams from California. I'm pro-California. Whatever you want to say in your mind. But that's how we are when it comes to our faith in Jesus Christ. And I've mentioned this before in a previous sermon in this series. There's only two teams, Team Christ or Team World. You pick which jersey you want to wear, but you better wear it. Because if you don't wear it and you are not prepared to identify with Jesus Christ, when the problems hit, when the pressures of the world hit, you will swing over and root for Team World. The Bible says when you identify with Jesus Christ, verse 21, you identify with someone who is not dead, but someone who is very much alive, verse 22. The Bible tells us in verse 22, Jesus Christ, this person whom we identify with, has been resurrected into glory. He sits at a place of honor at the right hand of God. To him has been given all authority, all power. This is the one whom you identify with. This is the one who you say, I'm with him. I'm with the one who is sovereign over this entire world. I am with the one who has created this world. It is a sad story when followers of Jesus Christ would rather wear the jersey of the world, figuratively, of course, instead of wearing the jersey of the one who controls the world. Did you get that? It is a sad state of affairs when followers of Jesus Christ would rather align themselves with the world rather than the one who controls the world. The one we stand with 
is Christ. He may not be popular in this world, but he reigns supremely over it. My friends, don't you ever think for a minute that you are on a bad team. Because we all like to be on winning teams, right? Most of us are bandwagon fans. We jump on with a team that is winning. If you want to be on a winning team, Team Christ is pretty good. Because verse 21 tells us he's already won the victory. It's a good team to be on. Not cheered on by many, but it is of no matter. It is of no consequence if you have prepared even now to align yourself and identify with Christ. And it is a responsibility you and I have. Some of you are probably wondering after we are finished with this book, what's our next sermon series? We'll jump back to the Old Testament. We've been praying about it. And I'll be doing a series on the life of Elijah. The life of Elijah is a unique one. He's one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. But if you think about it, his life is only talked about in three chapters in the entire scriptures in 1 Kings. Why the, book of Eli- why the, why the life of Elijah? Because Elijah is one who identified very strongly with Christ as he ministered in a time when Israel had its worst king. Worst king in terms of views towards God. The most antagonistic king in Israel's history against God. And here was a man who still stood firm and said, no, identify with Christ. And we're going to go through his amazing life in a seven-part series, and I hope you'll be praying for that. Let me conclude with an illustration. Years ago, there was a farmer who owned land along the Pacific seacoast. He constantly advertised for hired help, but a lot of people were reluctant to work in the farms along the Pacific because of the awful storms that would rage across the Pacific, wrecking havoc on buildings and crops. It was a very difficult job. As the farmer interviewed applicants for the job, he received a steady stream of refusal. They didn't want to work for him in his farm on the Pacific seacoast. Finally, a a short, thin man, well past middle age, approached the farmer. The farmer said to him, Sir, are you a good farmhand? Are you a good helper? The little man answered the farmer, Well, sir, I can sleep when the wind blows. Puzzled by the answer, the farmer wondered if this man was right in the head, but he was desperate for help, so he hired him. I can sleep when the wind blows. He wondered what that meant. The little man worked well around the farm, busy from dawn to dusk. And the farmer was generally satisfied with the man's work. Then one night, the wind howled loudly in from offshore, jumping out of the bed. Uh, the farmer grabbed the lantern and rushed next door to the hired hand's sleeping quarters. He shook the little man and yelled, Get up, get up, a storm is coming. We need to go out there and tie down the things before they blow away. The little man rolled over in bed and said firmly, No, sir, I told you, I can sleep when the wind blows. 
Enraged by this response, the farmer was tempted to fire him on the spot, but he had no time. Instead, he had to hurry outside to prepare for that storm. When he went out to his amazement, he discovered that all the haystacks had been covered with tarpaulin. The cows were all safely in the barn. The chickens were all in the coop. The door was barred. The windows were shuttered tight. Everything was tied down. Nothing could blow away. It was then the farmer understood what his hired hand meant. And so he too returned to his bed to also sleep while the wind blew. My friends, when we talk about preparation, whether spiritually, mentally, physically, Are you prepared enough that you can sleep when the wind blows through your life? Because if you are prepared, you have nothing to fear. God has given us a responsibility to be prepared. But you know what? That responsibility is for our own good. You see, it is when we are prepared to suffer for the cause of Christ. It is when we are prepared to defend our faith, whether verbally or in our life. It is when we are prepared to identify with him that we are the most at peace. It is because we are not prepared that we are uncertain and we are scared. In a world that is so scared and so uncertain, we must be prepared. And it is time for us as followers of Jesus Christ to take on the responsibility to prepare ourselves. The storms are coming. The onslaughts are coming. Can you sleep when the wind blows? Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Lord. It has reminded me, even as a pastor, to also be prepared to prepare myself to endure suffering for the cause of righteousness so that I can be able to answer future police officers who stop me and be able to answer the BIR agent who comes knocking at the door and be able to answer those unethical men and women who come to pull us away. Help me to be prepared also to defend my faith so the words I say may be consistent with the way I live my life and that the world has no holes to poke as they look in my life to try to look for something to question. And may it be, Lord, that I am prepared to identify myself with you, to put on the jersey of Jesus Christ and to never take it off, to say that I do not align myself with the world, that I align myself with the one who controls the world. And for that, Lord, I pray that not only would I be prepared, but you would raise up a generation of men and women in this church who will be prepared that when you come, you will find us faithful because we have been prepared to sleep through the storms when they come. Thank you, Lord, for your reminder through your word. May the Spirit continue to teach us as we leave this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.